Hello, everyone. We have been so excited by the growth our podcast has experienced since its launch. The support we've received has been incredible, and we want to take a moment to thank you all and ask a small favor of you. We produce every aspect of this show ourselves during the small downtime we have from our day jobs. We ask that you take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite listening platform. The more listeners that do this, the more exposure we get, allowing our audience to grow. The more we grow, the more time and energy we can invest in maintaining and improving the production. We love hearing from you, and we thank you in advance for supporting the show's growth. Now go enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Crime Bar. Grab a drink and enjoy the show. What? Oopsie. Hello, my lady. <laughs> I have gone ahead and just adapted the new, uh, just, I just call you my lady from now on. That what do you mean new the nickname. new? Well, I've just been calling you that lately. You called me that once last night. <laughs> no, I've been calling you my lady. I don't know if you've noticed in our cocktail videos, are you not an avid cocktail video watcher? I call <laughs> I guess, you my lady almost every video. <laughs> I guess I don't watch it afterwards. Like an English butler. <laughs> my lady. My lady. Um, what do you got for me today? Okay, today I am doing the story. Uh, it's a murder of a young woman named Arliss Perry. Okay. So Arliss was born in North, North Dakota. North Dakota. I love the name Arliss. I've never heard that before. Isn't it so pretty? It's a great name. So she was born in North Dakota on February 22nd, 1955. So she's a Pisces. Pisces. Her friends and family have said that Arliss was a very compassionate person. She was always thinking of others and going out of her way to be kind to those around her. Her only real flaw being that she was a little too trusting. And I read that and was like, wow, I wish that was like the only flaw that my family (laughs) acknowledged after my death. I was like, I have so many flaws. If I died, my family would be like, her only real flaw being severe criticism of those around her (laughs) and her never ending need for control. Her like, only flaw. <laughs> so terrible. Man, now I'm going to spiral thinking about what my fly, my fly would be. My flaw would be. <laughs> uh, no, let's not get into it on time. <laughs> so Arliss was a really bubbly and friendly cheerleader uh, through high school. And she always would bake cakes for every fellow cheerleader, as well as all the guys on the basketball team. She would bake individual cakes for everybody. I feel like this sounds like my mom as a Pisces, just like very, she would, I, that's what she would do in high school. She yeah, loved to bake and bubbly and friendly yeah, and like thought of social. others doing a little thing like that. Baking a cake for someone is like, it's such a, a simple way to be like, I thought about you it's or, really you know, sweet. it's your birthday. And so I, I wanted to do that. Really and that's, sweet gesture. that's the stuff that she would do. And all throughout high school, Arla dated the same boy, a guy named Bruce Perry, they were like that very storybook childhood sweethearts that stayed mm-hmm. together long after school. I mean, long after school was over, not at like the end of the school day. <laughs> yeah, past three o'clock. <laughs> they were always together past three. <laughs> he was a little older than her. And so after he graduated from high school, he had actually gone off to Stanford University in California. And she stayed back in North Dakota. But they stayed together despite the distance. Wow. Yeah, I feel like you never, that like never happens. Yeah, I feel like when you go off to college and your whatever boyfriend or girlfriend back home, it just sort of ends there. Kind of gets forgotten about. Yeah, maybe they hold through for like a semester. And then they just give up, yeah. Yeah, 
But then in 1974, she and Bruce got married and Arliss officially moved to Palo Alto to be with her new husband. I also want to acknowledge this is the second Stanford Shorty themed story I've done, which yeah. was a total coincidence. And you're not just like out to take Stanford down or anything. Well, no, but like my sister, <laughs> well, not intentionally, but my sister graduated from Berkeley and mm -hmm. she, um, when she heard I was doing this one, she was like, that's a Stanford story. This is your second Stanford and we are a cow family. And I was like, well, when you think about it, it's probably a lot better to like air their dirty laundry than was, Berkeley's. That's actually like, that is what you do. <laughs> I know. And she <laughs> was an like, enemy. she's like, oh. No, you're right. Okay, I'm all for it. <laughs> I'm like, you're the one who went to Berkeley? Go, cow. <laughs> oh, wait, bears. Cow. No, cow. Cow bears, Cow yeah. Berkeley. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, we didn't go I just, there. I just might go bears. Well, yeah, that too. Because they're bears, say, I yeah, they, yeah, they are. Yeah. Anyways, okay. well. Anyways. <laughs> anyways, forget about that. So by the time that she uh, moved and joined him in Palo Alto, Bruce was a sophomore pre-med student. And Arliss got a job working as a receptionist at a local law firm. And they had barely just begun their life as newlyweds when she died. So on the evening of October 12th, 1974, six weeks after their wedding, Arliss and Bruce were walking towards the mailboxes on the Stanford University campus when they got into an argument supposedly about the tire pressure in their car, which is... A typical happy couple fight. I, know, I just don't even... Or a like, lie. That, I, I just don't even know, like what that consisted of but they started bickering no the psi is 36 not yeah. 40 honey i know like something like, like they that. weren't even in the car they were walking to the mm -hmm. mailboxes so i don't know what that was about arliss was a really devout christian who grew up in a really really religious family so it wasn't odd that she told bruce she wanted to clear her head and be alone while she prayed they were near the stanford memorial church and she said that she was going to go inside despite the fact that it's 11 30 p.m and she told him that she would meet him at home soon. I don't go to church anyways, like during normal times, yeah. like normal business hours. But then I was like, is that normal? Like for, for a church? To Maybe she had to get something off her chest. No, but I mean, is that normal for a church to be open that late? I see why people pray at all hours. That's different. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it's like a 24-hour business thing, like a 7-Eleven. I don't know how that works. Yeah. If they keep it open all the time. Yeah. I'm not a church goer either, clearly. Yeah. So. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> So they part ways, he heads home, and she stays at the church. But Bruce didn't go to sleep after getting home because he was expecting her to be there shortly after him. But after an hour, he decided he was going to go back to the church and check to make sure that she was okay. But all of the doors were locked, and there was no sign of Arliss, so he ended up going back home, and he waited a little bit longer. And then by 3 a.m., with still no sign of Arliss, Bruce called the police and reported her missing. Knowing the last place that she had been seen, officers from the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department went directly to Stanford Memorial Church and walked the perimeter, but they found that all the doors were locked and there were no signs of a struggle anywhere on the outside. So, you know, they move on. Mm -hmm. Then a couple of hours later, at 5.45 a.m., a campus security guard named Stephen Crawford called the police to report that he had found a woman's body inside of Stanford Memorial Church. He'd arrived there at 5.40 a.m. to open the doors for the day when he found her body near the altar. Police arrived on the scene and found that Arliss's body was nude from the waist down and she was laying face up with her hands folded across her chest. It seemed like someone had attempted to strangle her but couldn't do it successfully. So they found an ice pick that was lodged in the back of her head and it was missing its handle. 
Her jeans had been folded into a diamond shape and then placed on top of her legs. And a three-foot-long altar candle had been inserted into her vagina. And another three-foot-long altar candle was placed between her breasts. What? So police found a partial palm print on one of the candles and semen on a kneeling pillow near Arliss's body. So obviously her husband Bruce and Stephen, the security guard who had found her, were the first suspects. But the palm print wasn't enough to get a match from either of them. And both men passed a polygraph. Although this is 1974. It's not reliable anyways. People put more weight on it back then. um, So I don't consider that relevant. And I couldn't find any information on the semen. And I assume because it was, again, in the 70s, there wasn't anything to do with it except bag it up as evidence. Mm -hmm. So they were essentially cleared as suspects. I could see this being a case that would be like a prime um, candidate for like le- later DNA testing if they were to have properly stored everything. Right. They and could have easily solved this now. It, and I don't actually think like everything I read doesn't acknowledge the semen in today's time, mm-hmm. you know, like what has, what happened how to it, it or how that's been, you know, so I don't know. Yeah. I, maybe, I don't know. Her murder was initially believed to be the fourth and what people had began calling the Stanford murders. In the year leading up to Arliss's murder, three other women roughly the same age who were all students at Stanford were found to be brutally beaten and murdered. But decades later, when those first three murders were solved through what we were just talking about, through DNA Today, Mm -hmm. they found that Arliss's murder was totally unrelated. A witness claims to have driven by the church late that same night and saw a young man with sandy blonde hair, medium build, and probably 5'10", enter the church just after midnight, but authorities have never been able to track this mystery person down. And what's really weird about the timing of that is that they said it was just after midnight, but Stephen, the security guard, said that he told police that just before midnight, Mm -hmm. he'd locked up the church for the night. He said he didn't see anyone inside before doing so and that he came back around 2 a.m. and the doors were still locked and nothing seemed out of place. Then when he returned at 540 to open up for the day, he found that a side door to the church was wide open and it seemed to have been forced open from the inside. So that sounds as though he unintentionally locked Arliss and a murderer inside and then she was killed and then the killer broke out the side door and took off. And like truly, it doesn't sound like he did a thorough sweep. He didn't even make it sound like he tried. He oh, just sort of, it was like, it was almost night. midnight. He kind of glanced and. It's obviously empty in his head. Yeah, that's what it looked like to him. So then he locked it up. Oh, and obviously he was. would be brutal. Gravely mistaken, but I wouldn't blame him. I, I would have <laughs> done the same thing. I didn't even know they opened, the, they stay open that late. It's so weird. That's something we should Google. So for several years, nothing really happened with the case. And then one day, a detective in North Dakota received a package in the mail from none other than David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer, who was currently in prison for the murders that he had committed in New York uh, a few years after Arliss was murdered. In the package, Berkowitz alluded to knowing something about Arliss, and a note read, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain. Followed to California, Stanford University. It's really too bad that we have so many killers that just want to gain attention. I mean, (laughs) making sense of mentally ill humans. Yeah. Because that could easily be something that is just a way to get attention. But on the flip side, he might know exactly who did it. Right. 
So police interviewed Berkowitz. They went to New York where he was, and they interviewed him in jail. And he alluded that he knew Arliss was killed by a satanic cult that he had been involved with. But then he supposedly clammed up and said he didn't want the cult to think he was a snitch. So he stopped talking. And the police left believing he had no information of value. That was their takeaway. It didn't seem like they actually believed that he was in fear of being labeled a snitch. I don't feel like he seems like that. However, an investigative journalist named Maury Terry interviewed Berkowitz as well as many of Arliss's friends and family as research for his book titled The Ultimate Evil. And he believed Berkowitz did not act alone and that he was in fact part of a real satanic cult. So because of this, rumors spread that Arliss may have come into contact with members of this cult while living in North Dakota. When she was living there, she had been heavily involved in her church's efforts to convert people to Christianity. So it was very possible that she actually did meet with people from a satanic cult in an attempt to convert them. So many people theorized that maybe she had been, you know, meeting with them and then seeing something she wasn't supposed to. And then they followed her to California and killed her so that she could never repeat it. Okay. Because she was killed in what looked like a kind of ritualistic manner and in a church of all places. And yeah, just so degraded in a place that is so holy, you know, like, so it makes sense. But nothing ever came of this theory. And it should be noted that Maury Terry's book that created a lot of that speculation came out in 1987 when the whole satanic panic was still a very big fear for people. Mm -hmm. It was trending at that point. It literally was. (laughs) So after this, the case went completely cold. Authorities kept it open and they would periodically check in on it, but nothing ever came up. Until 2018, Ooh. with new technology, DNA taken from the crime scene was retested, and Stephen Crawford, the security guard who had found Arliss in the church, turned out to be her killer. Oh, <laughs> your face is. Oh my! Well, I, well, I'm. I think what I'm stuck on right now is when I said the whole DNA testing thing. You're like, yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. That would make you, sense. You <laughs> sold that so hard with me, where I'm like, oh man, okay, that means it wasn't ever solved. <laughs> Twist. (laughs) Twists and turns, baby. So police obtained a search warrant, and on June 28th, 2018, they approached Crawford's apartment in San Jose, California. Two officers entered and saw Crawford retreat into his bedroom with a gun. Before they could reach him, Stephen Crawford shot himself in the head. He was 72 years old and lived alone in a studio apartment. After searching his home, police found a suicide note that Crawford had written four years earlier directly after being re-interviewed about Arliss's murder. So aside from DNA, there is evidence that he never intended to confess or risk going to prison. At a press conference to update the public, Santa Clara County Sheriff Lori Smith told reporters that Stephen Crawford had never been officially cleared as a suspect, but over the last 44 years since Arliss was murdered, the department never had enough evidence to prove his guilt. She didn't specify what evidence was tested, nor did she explain how they matched the DNA to Crawford. But either way, a 44-year-old mystery that had haunted Stanford University and the Bay Area as a whole was finally solved. Arliss's mom was 88 years old when she learned the identity of her daughter's murderer. She said her husband, Arliss's dad, had spent decades wanting so badly to know who took their child from them. And he had sadly died just three months shy of learning the truth. That is awful. She said knowing who did this brought her some closure. 
But her real question is why? Why did he do what he did? Because Stephen Crawford took his own life to avoid answering for his crimes, we will never know the answer. And that is my shorty about Arliss Perry. I'm still stuck on how much you sold that. If that had been me, I'd been like, oh, Ashley, I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. (laughs) You're a good storyteller, my lady. Thank you. (laughs) No, that was really good. That was um, awful. And when... When murderers commit suicide right before being brought in, they can't answer to the awful things they've done. It's like you're taking away closure. You're taking yeah. away. After everything you've already taken away that you can't, you can't ever make up for it. No. Like at that point, they're closing in on you. There's no reason to keep this any longer. Just sit there, you know. admit it, take but, fault. But also we're trying to reason with people who take lives to begin or with. psychopaths. So, <laughs> so it's like. There's really no point. We sound like the idiots actually. I still do that. I do that with exes and everything. Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm your best friend. Making you think I don't know crazy that? crazy baby since 92. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right. Love you. Love you too. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. See you next week.